welcome to uh, Calvinism Day Three. I can't believe we're almost done. It's so it goes so fast, doesn't it? Uh, I'm really glad that you stuck with this class. I think uh, it was good to have a conversation with one of you this morning, who said, you know, the very beginning of that class was a little hard, all the historical stuff, and I completely understand that. Uh, but then you stuck with it, and then you learned some really good things after uh, after all that historical stuff was said and done. So we're I'm going to start a little bit early. I'm not going to promise that I'm going to end a little bit early, because if you've been following along, um, we've still got lip to cover in the tulip. But I'll, 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 try not to, I'll try not to keep you guys too long, I promise. Before we start, um, let me pray, and then I'm going to ask if you guys have any questions that have kind of like that you've been thinking about, and I'll try to cover those questions um, in this very first part of class before we jump in. Let me pray. Father, uh, thanks so much for this time. Lord, it's been such a joy and such a pleasure to get to teach this class and to have great conversation. And I just pray that you would um, impress the truth of your word upon our students' hearts. Lord, that you would um, help us all to grow in our knowledge of you. Um, theology sounds like a big word, um, and it is. It's a big concept. But ultimately, we ask that we would know you better. And in knowing you better, would we love you more uh, for all the things that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us again now. Uh, move in us and, and open our, our ears and our hearts to hear the word uh, again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so day three of TULIP, Calvinism. What, uh, what questions do you guys have up to this point? Any thoughts or questions or uh, things that you want to talk about? You know, it's good. You got it down, man. You know, there's going to be more questions as I speak that you'll be like, oh, hold on a second. There's that other thing that I wanted to talk about. So, so far, maybe you can help me figure out where we are. So far, what was the first letter that we covered? T. T. Okay, good. And T, what does that stand for? Great. And give me, uh, does anyone want to, you can just shout out some answers. So, what does that kind of mean? We're sinners without God. We're what? We're all bad. Someone said hopeless. Yeah. Do we have the ability to choose or reach out to God of our own accord? No. Yeah. No. Yeah, we can't do it by ourselves. So, T, total depravity. Does that mean that we, like, all we're doing is thinking about ways to murder our family all the time? No. 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 What is the... That's so so sad. Um, Does that... But what... It's not that you're utterly depraved. That is that everything that you're only thinking about all the time is only the worst possible thing. It means that you're that we're stained. All of us are stained in such a way that we're just all off. We're all off. And so we all have a stain of selfishness and self-glorification. And we don't really want God in and of ourselves. We want to run away from Him. And if someone like put us in heaven, like if you were like transported like right now to heaven, if you, well, not you, if a person who is not um, was not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, a non-Christian was transported right now to heaven, you would hate it. You would hate it. Why? Because God's there and you don't want to have anything to do with God. In and of yourself, you're stained in such a way that even if you went to the best possible place on heaven and on earth, with God, you wouldn't want to be there. You would not want to be there because you would say, "Ugh, I don't want to humble myself before God. So, because of the T... And also, scripturally speaking, you have a second letter. What's that second letter? U. And what does it stand for? 
Unconditional election. And what kind of throw out some uh, working idea of what that means? Yeah, God has a chosen people. God chooses you, I heard. Good. And he does he choose you because you're a good apple? No. no. Why does he choose you? Because he loves you. Good. Yeah. The choosing of God is not based on any merit or virtue or goodness or faith or works in the person. God's choosing is based solely and completely on his gracious love for his people. Okay. So that's the two. Now we're gonna we're gonna follow and and uh, um, and do the last three letters today: L, I, and P. And that leaves us with a truncated amount of time to to do these letters. But I really needed to spend time here and here because um, if we spend time here and here, then these letters I think follow really well. Um, but you'll have to do some more reading and research on your own. If I had five days, I would spend one day per letter. Um, you know, but this is what we got. So, today we're talking about L, limited atonement. L, now this is the scariest one um, for people. They don't like this letter very much normally because when we think about Jesus' atonement, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we don't want to limit that. We want to say that that's a, it's it's this uh, uh, it's this amazing thing that Jesus has done for us. It's huge. It's big. We don't want to make it smaller. But I give you a little um, a little uh, foretaste on the first day when I said everybody limits Jesus's atonement in some way. Every Christian limits Jesus's atonement in some way. We either limit Jesus's atonement in terms of uh, scope, the people that Jesus died for. Or in terms of depth, the depths that Jesus went to to save his people. So what a Calvinist will say is that Jesus' death was limited in scope. Jesus died for some people. But Jesus' death was unlimited in degree. He died to the utter, he died, his death saved to the uttermost the people for whom he died. That means that every possible sin, every tiny stain, every bad thing that his people have ever done, Jesus died for completely and utterly. Now, if you are an Arminian, you would say Jesus died for everyone without distinction. The problem is is if Jesus died for, for everyone without distinction and some people are not saved, then you have to reach the conclusion that Jesus' death in some way did not actually save people. See how that follows logically? If Jesus died for everybody and yet not everybody is saved, then in some way Jesus' death did not fully or completely secure the salvation of someone. Okay? We're going to jump, we're going to go a little bit further into what that means. But so we're going to look at this idea limited atonement in three ways. First, we're going to see the biblical evidence for limited atonement. Then we're going to see the theological reasoning or rationale for limited atonement. And finally, we're going to look at the limited atonement logically. Logically. That is like putting thoughts together in a logical way. Okay? So, limited atonement. Christ's death was effectual. It worked for his elect people. That's a fancy way of saying Christ died for the salvation of the elect and the elect only. Christ's death truly and actually absorbed God's wrath against them and secured their salvation. Another way of getting at this question is did Jesus' death 
make salvation possible or did Jesus' death actually save? A Calvinist will say Jesus' death actually saved, where an Arminian is bound to say Jesus' death made salvation possible. Okay? We with me so far? Does that kind of make sense? You see the distinctions there? Alright, and in order to get there, um, we're going to say, we, I want us to go to two verses. This side of the room, I want you to open up to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17-21. This section of the room, I want you to open up to Colossians 2.13, I think it's through 16. Okay? Let's go there really quickly because I want to give you a little. I want to show you the nature of the atonement. Colossians two verses thirteen through sixteen, Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one. Okay, I'll give you a second to go there. I want you to read it. Read it together. Um, or like read it with like a group of people. So like turn to each other and read Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one. Um, and you guys read Colossians two thirteen, I think through sixteen together. I'll give you, I'll give you two minutes to do it, and then you can. Sorry. Oh yeah, to fifteen, thirteen through fifteen. Okay, let's. Um, does anyone want to read particularly Second Corinthians five twenty one and tell me something about what it means? Oh, okay. You want to read it and you want to tell me something about what it means? And vice versa? Oh, oh no, oh no. Which one? Oh no, oh no, oh no. Okay, you can read it. Yeah, just verse 21 for me. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Anyone want to give me some comments about what that might mean? Yes. Um, because he was like perfect and he was blamed for all the sin, like to all the punishment. So Jesus is perfect, right? Okay. And then here's you. You're an O. I don't know why. What are you? Sinful. Sinful. Okay. Let's just call you a T. You understand what this means. You're totally depraved, right? And what happened with him? The perfect one who knew no sin? He became sin. (laughs) He takes your tea, right? He takes the total depravity that you have. And what do you get? You get Jesus' perfect righteousness, right? We call some theologians call this the great exchange. That Jesus fully takes in the atonement, Jesus fully takes your sin. And fully gives you his righteousness. Okay? The nature of the atonement, the Bible tells us that the nature of the atonement is that Jesus was a substitute in your place. He was an actual substitute. And it, it is proper to the atonement to understand that substitution as taking sin of the, your sin and giving you his righteousness. So someone over here read... You read a lot. Someone over here read Colossians 2.14. Some non-leader kid. Millie, you want to do it? Okay. Anyone else? Okay, okay, okay. 
Read it like, nice and loud and clear. Colossians 2, 13 through 13. Uh, yeah, to, just read four, verse 14 for me. Okay. Having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Okay, so here's another way of thinking about you. This is confusing. You. Okay, here's another way of thinking about you. You have a record of debts, like a rap sheet. This rap sheet is everything bad that you've ever done. Every thought that you've ever done. And it stands against you. And, and uh, anyone can read this rap sheet. Satan can read the rap sheet. And you know, he likes reading that rap sheet. And he likes whispering in your ear, you're a sinner. And God can read the rap sheet too. He looks at your rap sheet and he says, okay, these are all the ways that this person has offended me. What does this verse, 2.14, give me some comments. What does it say? Where does that rap sheet go that was on you? It gets nailed to the cross, right? So that rap sheet gets nailed to the cross. Well, obviously, who, does it, who, who takes the rap sheet? Jesus. So now your rap sheet has been nailed to the cross. It's, you, you are no longer bound by your sheet of sins. So we can say that not only is Jesus the per, a substitute that stands in your place, He's also your penal substitute. The one who takes the penalty for your rap sheet of sins. Okay. The reason that this is really important, the reason that this is really important is that it's going to be made known to you in a little bit. I want you to keep that in your head. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I need to do this. I need to do this in order. Keep that in your head. Jesus is our substitute who takes away our sins, every single one of them, the rap sheet away from us. Okay? So, now what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the, to the Scripture and ask this question, for whom did Jesus die? First, Matthew 1.21. Jesus' name is... Jesus, for He will do what? Do you remember in all of your Christmas readings? His name shall be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Who will Jesus save from their sins? His people, right? Very good. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Hebrews 9.28 We're going to read this verse in its plenary form later, but Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. John um, chapter uh, 10 verse 11 The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep is what we're told. Now what I want us to do actually is I want us all to turn to John chapter 10 and see what it means that Jesus lays down His life for the sheep. Okay. John chapter 10. Remember, Jesus dies for His people. He dies for many. And He lays down His life for the sheep, it says in John chapter 10, verse 11. I'm going to read now John chapter 10, verse 14. And, uh, and then on to verse 26. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Who does Jesus lay down His life for? The sheep. Good. 
Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now he goes on and he looks at the, some of the people, and he says in verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus says very clearly, who does he lay down his life for? The sheep. And then he looks at another group of people and he says, you are not among my So Jesus is very clearly saying to a group of people, I am not laying my life down for you. I am not laying my life down for you. Now that's a very clear clear passage in Scripture that says Jesus is saying there are a people that I have come to die for and this group of people, you group of people that I'm talking to, it's not you. That's pretty intense. But that we have, we have biblical evidence of limited atonement here, don't we? Uh, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, let's go there. Chapter 5, verse 9. This is the new song that the people of God are singing about Jesus. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. We sang that song. Who is worthy? Great song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, and so the simple idea here is... There's a big group of people called every tribe and language and race, race and nation. And the biblical the Bible says that it is from that the people that he died for are from every tribe and language and people and nation. So conceptually speaking, that there is a mass of humanity, and Jesus' death ransomed or was effective for a people within that mass of humanity from every tribe and language and people and nation. We have more evidence of, of Jesus' limited atonement. We see it when he talks about the people whom he, for whom he died, his church. So we see in, uh, in Acts 20, 28, you don't need to flip there, it's okay. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to feed the church of the Lord, which he obtained for himself with his own blood. Who did Jesus obtain for himself with his own blood? The church. Ephesians 5, 25-27 Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Who did Jesus give Himself up for? Her. Her. Which is referring to the church. Now, when, when we put this evidence together, at first you think, well, that's not a ton of biblical evidence for limited atonement. It's not a ton. The John 10 passage is really explicit and obvious, right? It's very cl- that's a clear passage. There are other passages that, okay, maybe. What's important to recognize, though, is when we understand what Jesus' death did, He actually took the sins of His people on Himself. We can say this, that when Jesus went to the cross, He went to the cross and He died specifically for a group of people. The Bible points us in that direction. And when He died specifically for a group of people, 
Jesus can truly say what He did at the end of John's Gospel when He said, It is finished. So that Jesus can actually say, The people for whom I died, I have eternally secured their salvation. I didn't just make it possible, I have actually secured their salvation. So we see in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verse 12, this is what it says about Jesus' death. He entered once for all to the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Only Calvinism explains how Jesus can secure an eternal redemption. So, yeah, question. I've got a question. Please. Not at all. John 3.16 Yeah. So how does God how does God love the world that He sent His only Son? Right? Like that's basically what you're asking. So passages about um, God's love for the world in general. Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways that a Calvinist will have to talk about that. One is the world um, in Scripture does not necessarily always mean every single individual. Um, I actually think that that's not a great argument for John 3.16, but you understand this when... Uh, so in, in the Olympics, so I, so I have in my notes, there was a commentator in 1994 Olympics in Atlanta who said the world is at our doorstep. Did he mean that every individual in the world was actually in Atlanta for the 1994 games? No. He meant every, every type of, every nation was kind of in Atlanta for the 1994 games. So when we read world, we can sometimes read a general mass of people that does not include every individual, every kind of person. So Jesus ransomed a people for himself from every nation. We can read it like that. Um, in another passage in the Gospels, uh, we're told that the world was going after Jesus um, to mean a large mass of humanity, but not the actual world. We can also say about the world, so there's a general versus specific group of people question, right? We can also say that when we see John 3.16, what's most in view here is the priority of the Father who loves people first. And like, so sometimes people will talk about, this is getting a little bit more theological, sometimes people will talk about how... um, God the Father doesn't love us until Jesus the Son dies for us. And that's just not true at all. That's not true at all. God the Father loves His people even before His people love them. And so His love for the world is exhibited in a number of different ways. Um, Making it rain on the just and the unjust. Not bringing down His wrath and judgment upon a people. Sending His Son to the world to die for His people. So we can understand it. The emphasis of that verse is probably less the death of Jesus and more the love of God for His creation and His people, the people in the world. But it is a really good question. And I, and I want to point out that that's a tension point in Calvinism. That is a tension point. We're not... I think that the, the preponderance of evidence points to limited atonement. But, yeah, that's a tension point. Another tension point, and I'll get to your question in a second, um, another tension point that we have is that, um, that God the Father has no desire or delight in the perishing of the wicked. 
Okay, that's a tension point, right? Because you're like, in what way does God not delight in the wicked to perish? Now, we can mean that in a couple of different ways. Is this more than you could handle? No, you're fine. You got this. That's in, um, uh, is it uh, it's first or second Timothy 2? Sorry. Which one of those? And it could mean that God is holding out his hands to humanity and saying, please come to me, please come to me, please come to me. It's hard to read it like that, considering, again, the preponderance of evidence that says that God is in control of all things. So it's hard to read that God is uh, impotently hoping that people come to him. It's probably best to read that God is like a righteous judge who, I'm going to use you as an example because you're right in front of me, who loves, what's your name? Fisher. Fisher, who loves Fisher. Generally speaking, because God has a love for his creation, but Fisher has done something wrong. And like a righteous judge, it would be wrong for me to, if Fisher has murdered a number of people, to just let him off the hook. It would be right for me as a judge to condemn Fisher, but God has, takes no delight. It's not like he's like flicking people into hell and like, <laughs> there's no delight that the judge would bring down that sentence. But at the same time, the judge, to be righteous, has to bring down, down that sentence. Okay. There's a lot of good questions that you can ask me, and I'm just hoping that you don't. No, that's not true. <laughs> we have answers to these questions, but you're, I'm glad you're, you're getting into some of the, the tension points. And so that was a good question. Did I kind of answer it a little yeah. bit? Okay. Yeah. So in relation to that, is the world... When God set up the world and He came down to the world, He didn't the world. But uh, so, is yeah. this? Can we interpret that as the whole of creation? Like, does that bounce off of Romans eight twenty two? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Are, is there is there echoes of that? Is it? I think that's a. That's a really great pickup. Yeah, what, what Justin is picking up is that there's more to Jesus' death and resurrection than just bringing a people in reconciliation to God. There's also this worldwide mission uh, that, God is, that God is doing in actually reconciling the entire world, the cosmos, to himself. That now, in Christ Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, and when he finally comes again, the world will work correctly again. Like hurricanes won't destroy like people anymore. And lightning bolts won't hit you anymore. And institutions will work correctly like they never work correctly in this world. And so this is a, this is a uh, common grace brought forward to reconciliation of all things. And so, yes, that is another way that we can understand world. And you have to kind of look at the context to understand those things, but I, I think that that would be a, a good wrinkle in the way of understanding that. You're looking at me like, you, you're, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. <laughs> no, not you. No, you're good. Uh, good questions. Thank you for asking those questions. Let's look at this. Um, okay, so limited atonement. I've given you some biblical evidence for it. I've pushed back against you and really good questions about some of the biblical texts that might stand against Calvinism. So let's talk about it theologically. And I just want to say, limited atonement makes sense. What time do we get out of here? 10.30? Okay, I'm going to have to do this quickly. Limited atonement makes sense, sense theologically, right? We've established that God the Father elects a group of people for salvation, right? 
We kind of figure that one out. And then he sends the Son to die for a group of people. And then the Holy Spirit regenerates that group of people and preserves them to the end. Theologically speaking, God has one will. God has one will, right? It's one God. We have one God. Three persons, but one God. And it would be unfathomable for the, for the Father to say, I'm electing this people. And the Son to say, yeah, I know, but can we get these people too? Right? It's an unfathomable reality. Once you recognize that God has elected a people to Himself, we know that the Son then will go and get those people and die for those people on the cross. It would be... It would be um, we can't break apart the Trinity. We can't break apart the Trinity theologically. So we have to say if God has elected a people to Himself, the Son goes and gets those people. It also makes sense logically, and this is where this great exchange comes in here. Um, John Owen, an English Puritan, he says that you have three options in the sense of what Jesus' death does. Three options. Option number one, Christ died for all of the sins of all people. Now, if Christ died for all of the sins of all people, who would go to heaven? Everyone, right? Does everyone go to heaven? No. So option one is not a good option logically because we know that universalism is not true. Every, we know that Jesus talks about hell more than any, anyone else in Scripture. And he says broad and easy is the way that leads to eternal destruction. So we know not everyone goes to heaven. So option one is untenable. You can't hold that option. Option two, Christ died for some of the sins of all people. If Christ died for some of the sins for, of all people, that means that everybody has some sin still on them. What happens if you still have a sin on you that is not atoned for? You go to hell, that's right, because one sin is able to send you to hell. So option two is untenable. Option three then becomes the only possible option, and it's this. Christ died for all of the sins of some people. If Christ died for all of the sins of some people, then those some people are saved, and the people for whom He did not die are not. Now, in order to make this, in order to drive this point home, I'm going to quote an Arminian theologian. Okay, so this Arminian theologian, his name is uh, Ken Greider, and he actually agrees with this logic. And he says this, Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one would then ever go to eternal perdition. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. What, I'm going to paraphrase that. What he says is, because Arminians believe that Jesus died for every person, therefore Arminians cannot consistently believe that Jesus took the penalty of every person. You see that? So an Arminian actually has to change what Jesus did on the cross in some way. He's going to do it in different ways. He's going to call it different atonement theories, uh, governmental atonement theory. He might talk about Christus Victor. It doesn't matter. But he has to do something other than what we just did. If you believe that Jesus took your rap sheet on Himself, then you've got to, you've got to deal 
you've got to deal with limited atonement in some way. Yeah. So this only becomes a problem when we know who, when, if you're assuming that we know who the elect are versus this is only God's prerogative that he knows who the elect are. Yeah, that's a good point. Please don't run around and being like, you're elect or not elect. Please, yeah. Like, we're getting into... Let, we're getting into this system here and it's like, oh sweet, I can't wait to tell people how not elect they are and how Jesus didn't die for them. Don't do that. Ever. Don't ever do that. Don't be mean to people like that. You don't know. You don't know. But here's where it's helpful. Here's where it's really, really helpful. If you don't, if you believe, if you believe that you've got to do something to access Jesus' death for you, that puts you in the same position yesterday as having to do something to access God's love for you. Normally, that access point is how strong your faith is, right? So the decider in Jesus' death for you is how strong your faith is when you reach out to Him. The problem is, is does everyone's faith, is it everyone's faith like perfect all the time? No. Sometimes you go through doubt and confusion and you're not sure, right? And that's okay. If you hold to this reality, you can actually you have we actually have space for you to not be sure and to doubt and to wrestle. Here's the image, okay? Here's the image. Let's say you're falling off a cliff. Let's just say you're falling off a cliff and you see a tree branch, okay? And that tree branch is the only possible thing that you can reach out to that can save you. And if you're on this side of the room, you see that tree branch and you're like, I only have like 2% faith that that's, that tree branch is going to save me. Like, I just don't, I don't think it's strong enough. I think I'm falling to my death. Okay? But you reach out and grab it. And this side of the room, you've got like 99% faith that that tree branch is going to save you. Like, you really believe that tree branch is going to save you and you reach out and grab it. If the tree branch is strong enough and you grab onto it, does it save the people who believe 2%? Yeah. And it saves the people who believe 99%. And it saves everyone who believes anywhere in between. What's important about that illustration is it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the tree branch that saves you. So again, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of Jesus' death for you that saves you. The grounds of your salvation is Jesus' death, not your access or faith of that death. Your assurance then lies on Jesus and not on yourself. So you can reach out to Him whether you are strong in faith or weak in faith and I guarantee you, you will go up and down in your strength and your weakness in faith. Calvinism reminds you not to be self... And this is what happens so often with students and people is that we go self-focused and we think about ourselves and how strong am I believing and where do I stand and what this is driving you to do is look at Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I don't know. I'm not totally sure. I'm not there yet. But all I can do is hope in your salvation and what you've done and not in, in my faith. So it drives us to look out to God and not to ourselves. So here's the uh, so here's the, so here's the last illustration. I think this will help you as well. In an Arminian system, Jesus is in a boat, and there are drowning people, and Jesus is just chunking out life jackets. 
So he is a general love for mankind because he's chunking out life jackets. Just a general love for people. But this, but the problem, and so in, what you have to do is you've got to hold on to that life jacket and you've got to swim back to the boat. That's how you get salvation. What's the problem with that? You ain't drowning, you dead. Right? So a general love for humanity that just chunks out life jackets is not going to save any dead person. Any drowned person cannot hold on to that life jacket. So Jesus does not have a general love for people that doesn't save anyone. He has a particular love. It's not that He throws out life jackets. He jumps out of the boat and brings your drowning self back into the boat and resuscitates you. Arminian has to say that Jesus has a... When Jesus went to the cross, He only went to the cross generally for humanity and no one in particular. When a Calvinist says Jesus went to the cross, he says Jesus went to the cross with a particular saving love for you. He loves His people particularly. It takes one step further than a generalized love for a faceless mass of humanity and says, I am going to the cross for this person or this person. Jesus loves you particularly, not generally. Amen. Amen. Any questions about limited atonement before we move on to irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints in the last 15 minutes of this class? Yeah. So what would like our be like Yeah, that's a great question. And I didn't say this earlier in my class and I should. It, it's important to recognize that this is an intramural discussion. That is, Arminians and Calvinists are on the same team. We're Christians. We really are. Um, what I'm trying to help us to do is to grow deeper in our theological understanding. Because the more we know God, the more we love God. It's like, uh, you know, the more you know your best friend, the more you appreciate your best friend, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, right? Well, the more you know a really, really great and righteous God, the more you love a really great and righteous God. So, this is... And great Arminians... Okay, so like John Wesley. John Wesley was an Arminian. But he couldn't get around this. He couldn't get around the great exchange. He believed that Jesus died for our rap sheets. And he basically... And, I, and to his credit, he said, the Bible leads me to believe this, and it doesn't quite fit my theological system, but the Bible is telling me to believe this, so I'm going to believe this. John Wesley would be one of the most famous Arminians uh, out there. He's kind of founded Methodism. Okay, So to his great credit, he said, theological exactitude uh, be darned. <laughs> I'm going to stick with what the Bible says. So, you can find people all over the spectrum when it comes to Arminianism, Calvinism. It's important to recognize we're on the same team. And I just want you guys to be continually growing in your, in your knowledge of God. Does that help you answer your, that question? Okay, great. Okay, so, oh, I'll keep that on the board. So, let's go to I, irresistible grace. The working definition of irresistible grace is... I'm going to read it from here. All those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith. All those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith. Okay? Now, uh, let me read 
Let me read, before I jump into this, I'm going to read what C.S. Lewis says about irresistible grace. He doesn't have it form- He doesn't say it formally, but here's how he describes coming to faith in Jesus. Okay, one day he's traveling on the top of a bus, and he says this, Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow pointed out to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing, like corsets, or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Lewis later describes God as the hound of heaven, going after his people like the hound on a trail of a fox. And later he wrote, I was never so happy as to be caught. Now, what Lewis is describing is he's describing this moment where the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to see the goodness and grace of God. And for the very first time in his life, it's almost like he has a free choice. Here's the image. Because of, total, because of your sin, you are eating crusty, old, rotting bread your whole life. Your whole life. And you, can ne- you will never turn around and see the grace that's offered to you in the Gospel. It's like you're in a prison cell and you've got shackles on and you're not really free. You're a slave to sin and sadness. And you can't ever get... You never will turn and see what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. But then God, by the Holy Spirit who is rich in mercy, shows up in your life. And for the first time you turn and in, away from that moldy, crusty bread and you see this incredible feast of God's grace available to you. And for the very first time in your life, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you turn from that bread and enter into the feast that God has prepared for you. For the very first time in your life, the shackles of your sin fall off and you freely walk out of the dungeon of yourself and into the grace of God. It is a choice for the very first time, but who in their right mind would ever choose to stay in the dungeon or choose the moldy bread over the feast that is offered for them? What the eye is saying is that because you'll never turn, the Holy Spirit is going to open your eyes for the first time to turn and look and enter in to the grace of God. The sad thing is, is that if left to yourself, you would never do this. Has anyone seen The Lord of the Rings? You've seen the Lord of the Rings? Okay, wow. Not, so this is not going to help you that much. Or read the Lord of the Rings. Okay, so there's this guy named Frodo. He's a hobbit and he's got a ring. And this ring represents sin and sadness and death. And it is weighing him down. It is crushing him. He is bearing the burden of this like sin and death. Okay? And he's been tasked to get rid of it. So he's got to walk to the fires of Mount Doom and throw it in this volcano and finally get rid of it. And it is, it is, it is crushing him. It's very difficult. And he walks all the way there and he gets to the very top. And he's about to throw the ring in. And instead of throwing the ring in, he just says, the ring is mine. And he puts it on. 
in your sin, even though it crushes you and it hurts you and it bears you down and it weighs you down, if left to yourself, you would double down on it. You would say, I want it still. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to get rid of it. It's crushing me. It's hurting me, but I don't want to get rid of it. And it's not, So there's nothing inside of you that will finally and fully get rid of your sin. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit has to come into your life and make you alive for the first time and take that sin away from you and apply Jesus' redemption to you. You wouldn't get rid of it even though you hate it. You would rather turn into Gollum than be rid of it. It's a sad sad story. So when we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we often see this idea of bringing someone from death to life or making someone reborn. So these are the images given to us for the regeneration that irresistible grace speaks of. I'm going to do this in like two minutes. Um, The main image that the Bible uses to describe the process is spiritual birth, also called regeneration. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, Jesus is speaking to Lazarus. And Jesus talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus rightly asks, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What Did you... Did you contribute to your birth, your natural birth? No. No, you did not contribute to your natural birth. That was not you that was like, okay, mom and dad, I want to be born now. You didn't contribute one wink, one iota, one little bit to your natural birth. And what Jesus is saying here is that you do not contribute one wink to your spiritual birth either. The Spirit blows where He wills and He makes alive those people that God has chosen and that Jesus has died for. Another example of this is when Jesus calls out to Lazarus. What's Lazarus... Is he? Do you remember he's been in the tomb for four days and he's laying there dead? And the powerful working of Jesus calls out to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, get up! Now in order to listen to Jesus' voice, which Lazarus does, Lazarus has to be made alive. And this is a great example of this powerful Word of God that comes into a person's life and first regenerates you or makes you alive so that you can freely listen to the call of Jesus in your life. You cannot contribute to your resurrection. You cannot contribute to your birth. The Spirit has to raise you from death or make you be born again. Both of those images are operative here in uh, irresistible grace. Now sometimes it feels like you're resisting the grace of God. And for a long time you might resist the, the grace of God. But like a hound of heaven, He will come and get you. Okay, I just covered that point incredibly fast. I'm sorry. Let's get to this final point in the two minutes that we have. Perseverance of the saints. What did someone read from their, your first uh, page of your handout? What perseverance of the saints means? Yes. Oh, no, not you, not you. You're so great. Anybody else want to read it? I will. 
Okay, great. Read it for me. All of those chosen by God to salvation will persevere to glorification. That's so good, yeah. All of those chosen by God for salvation will persevere to glorification. So, he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion at the day of the coming of our Lord. Philippians 1.6 Because salvation is completely and fully of the Lord, if He starts a good work in you, He will bring it to completion at the end of days. Those whom God has chosen for eternal life will never fall out of His hands. That is a good word. We need that assurance of salvation. Again, it gets back to assurance, doesn't it? Because if it's you that keep yourself in the faith, you might not you might not be able to you might not stay with it, right? But because it's God that keeps you in the faith, God Himself will make sure that you survive to the very end. So you remember the chain of Romans that I read in Unconditional Election? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If God begins a good work, even before you're born, knowing you from the very beginning, He will surely bring it about to completion and glorification. A great image that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10. This is a good chapter if you want to read about Calvinism. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and none is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so we have this beautiful picture of the believers of Christ, the sheep in Jesus' hand and in the Father's hand, secure eternally forever. If God begins a good work in you, He promises that He will finish that good work in you. I need to end there. I'm sorry. There's so much ground to cover. You're going to have to read some of these passages on your own. Um, but thanks for being part of this. Let me pray. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for this class. Lord, I know that there are more questions. I know that we have to grow and learn more. And Lord, I have to grow and learn more too. Lord, I pray especially that you would assure these students that it is you who began this good work in them and you will complete it. That you would give them rest in your completed work in the gospel. We thank you so much for that assurance that comes to us uh, in your word and because you are a good father who will be with us to the very end of time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. It's fun.